Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. Search and rescue teams call it death by GPS. And it happens when a well-meaning driver follows poor directions from a GPS device and ends up in serious trouble. Alicia Sanchez and her six-year-old son, Carlos, were only lost for five days. But in Death Valley National Park, that's more than enough time to die. Most Death Valley deaths are the result of dehydration, and that was sadly the case in this instance. And when a park ranger came across her incapacitated car, the first thing Alicia said to him was, my baby is dead. And he found a six-year-old, he found six-year-old Carlos slumped over in the front seat. Alicia was just within hours of dying herself, and she was just following her GPS unit, which directed her down the wrong road. Despite the grisly name, Death by GPS, not every victim dies from following bad directions from their GPS, but the name is certainly a reminder of how high the stakes can be when you trust technology. I mean, people are dying every year trusting instruments with faulty data. And having an unreliable source of data can be extremely, extremely dangerous. And if it's important to be precise with a GPS when your physical life might depend upon it, how much more when your spiritual life and eternity depends upon it? How many people today think that they're heading toward heaven when in reality they are heading toward destruction because they believed what they were told was the gospel, but it wasn't the gospel at all? Tragically, I'm afraid there are many people in this country who are trusting in the wrong source to guide them. And so we have to ask ourselves, what source will we use to guide us to what the gospel is? Well, obviously, the answer is obvious, right? The, the Word of God, which protects us from the counterfeit Gospels that so many are embracing today. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul was not the least bit ashamed of the Gospel. But it appears that many in the visible church today are ashamed. Because they want to change it. They want to change the Bible's message about who God is, who Christ is, what God's Word says. They, they want to change the message of the Gospel. But loved ones, there are, there are some things that never change. God never changes. I mean, the Bible says that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and for that we are eternally grateful. God's Word never changes. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 remind us that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God never changes, the word of God never changes, and the gospel never changes. The gospel does not change with the times or with the culture. It is the message for all men in every age. And so God doesn't change, his word doesn't change, the message of the gospel never changes. It is the only message that is sufficient to transcend time and cultures. As Charles Spurgeon said, the old, old gospel is the newest thing in the world. In its very essence, it is forever good news. And we dare not change the gospel in any way. We dare not add to it or take away from it or modify it in the least bit to make it more palatable to the culture or more acceptable to the unbelieving world around us. And we must always remember that the gospel, the, the word of the cross, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 1.18, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. It is good news. In fact, the word gospel means good news. It is an announcement from heaven about what God has done for sinful man through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And thus the gospel is a message of salvation, a message of comfort, a message of hope, a, a message of joy. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that many professed Christians today do not know what the gospel is because they have received bad data, false information that's leading them down the road to destruction. And as I listen today to, to popular Christian radio stations, to the hosts on those stations and, and their guests. As I listen to contemporary Christian music, popular Christian speakers and preachers, as I read popular Christian bloggers, it is painfully obvious that there is a discrepancy between what the Bible says and what is being presented today as gospel by many. Let me read to you from this little book called What is the Gospel? If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's good for new believers, uh, old believers. It's what, probably one of the best little books I've ever seen written on the gospel. Uh, we have it in the bookstore, I believe, or did. We might be out. So you can see Bill Tejan after the service if you're interested in a copy. And I'm going to give this copy away. But before I do, let me just read you uh, what a few popular uh, Christian artists and different people who have the platform have said is the gospel. Listen to this. This was a, a well-known Christian artist. and He was asked in an interview to define what the good news of Christianity is, what the gospel is. This is what he said. What a great question. I guess I'd probably, my instinct is to say that it's Jesus coming, living, dying, and being resurrected, and his inaugurating the already and not yet of all things being restored to himself, and and that happening by way of himself, that uh, the, the being made right of all things, that process both beginning and being a reality in the lives and hearts of believers, and yet a day coming when it will be more fully realized. But the good news, the gospel, the speaking of the good news, I would say is the news of his kingdom coming, the inaugurating 
of his kingdom coming, that's my instinct. It's convoluted at best. Here's another one. The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? That's that person's definition of the gospel. Here's an, and these are people that have uh, the audiences. Here's another one. The good news is that God's face will always be turned toward you, regardless of what you've done, where, where you've been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and has turned in your direction looking for you. Good news is God, God is becoming king, and he is doing it through Jesus, and therefore, whew, God's justice, God's peace, God's world is going to be renewed, and in the middle of that, of course, is good news for you and me, but that's the derivative from or the corollary of the good news, which is a message about Jesus that has a second-order effect on me and you and us. But the gospel is not itself about you are this sort of a person and this can happen to you. That, that's the result of the gospel rather than the gospel itself. Salvation is the result of the gospel, not the center of the gospel itself. And here's the last one I'll read. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus in two senses. It is the proclamation announced by Jesus, the rival of God's realm of possibility, his kingdom in the midst of human structures of possibility. But it's also the proclamation about Jesus, the good news that in dying and rising, Jesus has made the kingdom he proclaimed available to us. And those all have a sliver of truth, but I certainly wouldn't consider any of those. Uh, even remotely close to an accurate biblical presentation of the gospel. And I believe that many professed Christians today would present something that is far short of what the Bible holds out as the gospel. And so what is the gospel? And that's what I want to speak about this morning. What is the gospel to coincide with handing out these tracts? Uh, what is the gospel? And you would think that every Christian would be able to articulate the content of the gospel because the gospel is at the very center of Christianity. It's what we build our lives upon. What is the gospel? Well, someone might say, well, the gospel is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, certainly that is part of the gospel. That is exactly what Jesus did to accomplish our salvation. But why was it necessary for Jesus to come and die? Why do we need a Savior? Why do we even need to be saved? And this is what is so often missing in gospel presentations. Why we need to be saved. And often today, and you've heard it and I've heard it, Jesus is presented as the one uh, who can help you with your problems. I mean, you know, if, if you have problems with drugs or alcohol, or if your marriage or, or business is failing, if you've gotten yourself into uh, all kinds of trouble, if you've been traumatized in some way, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. And so just pray this simple prayer, and he'll help you and take care of all your problems. Just try Jesus. 
Loved ones, we don't need a savior because we have problems, as real and as traumatic as those problems may be. Well, then why do we need a savior? Well, to understand the good news of the gospel, we have to first understand the bad news, because the bad news tells us why we need a savior. And what is the bad news? And it's bad. It's really bad. What is the bad news? Well, the gospel always begins with God. It doesn't begin with man, and that's the problem with so many gospel presentations today. It's man-centered. It begins with man. The gospel does not begin with man. The gospel always begins with God. And what is announced to us in the gospel is that there is a God. He is the only God. And there is none like him. And he is holy and righteous and just. He is infinite, all-powerful, all-wise. He is the creator. God is the creator of all things. God created the world and he created man to live in fellowship with him, to have fellowship and communion with him, to worship, love, and adore him, to serve him, and to glorify him. I mean, God put Adam, the first man in the garden, to keep the garden, and he gave Adam a command which he was to perfectly and perpetually obey. And God promised life if he kept it and death if he did not. But Adam willfully disobeyed God's command. Adam sinned. And in Adam, who was the representative of the whole human race, in Adam, the whole human race fell and sin and death came into the world, as Paul said in Romans 5.12, through one man, speaking of Adam, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. And Adam's sin has been passed down to every human being that has ever been born except one. Every human being has inherited Adam's sin nature. So that all men are born into this world sinners by birth, sinners by nature, and sinners by conduct, and therefore they are alienated from a holy God. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that all people are sinners. Paul said in Romans 3.23, for all have, what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible also clearly states in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. When we sin, we earn something that God must pay us, and that is spiritual death, which does not mean annihilation. No, spiritual death is an eternal separation from the love and acceptance of God in a place of eternal torment and suffering. You see, the unbeliever will not go to heaven to be with God, because heaven is not man's default destination. Sinful man is headed to an eternal experience of the wrath of God. That's the bad news. Man is a sinner from birth, a sinner by nature and by conduct. We've all sinned and fallen short of what God requires to get into heaven, and we are alienated from a holy God. And this alienation from God prevents every sinner from having fellowship with God, who is too perfectly holy to have anything to do with sinners except to reject them and to punish them forever. I mean, this is the dire predicament of every human being. All men stand guilty and condemned before a holy and righteous God. And so the fact that we are all sinners is a huge problem, to say the least. 
And to make the problem even worse is that men reject God. All men know there is a God through creation by simply observing what God has made. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1. He says there in verses one, or chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of the unbeliever, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All men are without excuse. And the Bible says we, we, we all understand we have a creator, but we've all handled that information in a sinful way. Paul says again in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And suppress the truth about, they, they suppress the truth about God. They, they hold it down, in other words, trying not to let the truth affect them. Because they don't want to hear the truth. And one of the ways they do that is by trying to replace the Creator. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. I mean, sinful man will worship. I mean, that is, he will give his love, affection, time, effort, and resources to anything and everything other than the true and the living God. In verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, Paul said, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Literally, they did not glorify him or, or give him thanks. So although man knows and is conscious of God's existence and power, although they know he is transcendent, all-powerful, infinitely greater than themselves, instead of responding appropriately to that knowledge by glorifying and giving thanks to God, they reject and suppress that knowledge. They refuse to glorify God as God. They refuse to recognize him as the author of all good who should be thanked. And that is the fundamental problem with the human race. We do not acknowledge, value, treasure, honor, or glorify God. I mean, that is our wickedness and our great rebellion against God. Whether it's suppressing the truth about God, worshiping something other than God, or refusing to honor Him as God and give Him thanks, man rejects the true and the living God. In fact, according to Paul in Romans 1, they don't even want God in their knowledge. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Literally, they did not approve having God in their knowledge. And not wanting to have God in their knowledge is the same as suppressing the truth. I mean, Christ is the truth, but men don't want him in their knowledge, and so they suppress this truth. They will exchange it. They will distort it. They will hide it. They will run from it. Why? Well, because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 7. And the word translated hostile there means enemy. A person who hates another and wishes him injury, it speaks of a state of enmity or active hostility and opposition. You see, contrary to how most non-Christians want to portray themselves, they are not neutral about religious matters. They are not indifferent about God or apathetic when it comes to the claims of Christ. They may speak publicly of a supreme being in whose existence they believe. 
But when it comes to the one true God of holiness and justice and absolute supremacy, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, anger, rebellion, and hostility dominates their hearts. And so unbelievers are not only alienated from God, refusing to acknowledge and worship God, they're also hateful toward him by attitude. They hate him. And they resent his holy standards and his commands. And how widespread is this human condition? It's true for every single human being who has ever lived. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good And in case anybody wanted to argue with that, he said, not even one. There is no man who does not sin, 1 Kings 8.46. But the bad news gets even worse. Because what makes it worse is that from the human standpoint, there's nothing we can do to change our nature. I mean, sinful man doesn't want to change his nature anyway. And the Bible says men love the darkness. Jesus said that. Men love the darkness. They love their sin. They hate God. They will not come to the light. But even if they wanted to, there is nothing man can do in and of himself to change his nature. I mean, as the song we sang right before I came up, uh, we, we cannot make our souls alive. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God and acceptable to God. There's nothing that we can do to be worthy in his sight. There is nothing we can do to satisfy his just and holy wrath. There's nothing a sinner can do. There are no good works a sinner can do to make himself right with God because a sinner cannot be good enough. No matter how many good deeds we do, we still commit sin and we still have the problem of a corrupt nature within. Sin affects us to the very core of our being. And no matter how good we try to be, we will never ever meet God's standard of perfection on our own. And the Bible says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag or like a polluted garment. That's how God views all of our good works. Our own attempts at goodness are simply not good enough and never will be. We cannot be religious enough. There are not any religious rituals or ceremonies a sinner can perform that would cause him to become right with God. And so an entire lifetime of doing good things and performing religious rituals cannot make a man right with God. It cannot atone for one single sin. A sinful man stands guilty and condemned before God, and he has no power within himself to change himself. As Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil? It's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is no. Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. 
Well, the answer is no one. Sinners are powerless to change themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. Outward reformation is entirely within man's power. I mean, a man may change when it comes to his outward conduct. He may stop bad habits. He may stop addictions. He may stop other bad behavior. But it's only outward. It doesn't touch the root of the problem, which is the heart. Because man can never change his sin nature. He can never atone for one sin. And one sin, just one sin, violating the law of God is enough to condemn a sinner. And so that means the first sin the sinner ever commits is enough to condemn him to hell for all eternity. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes that everyone who, who fails to perfectly keep the law of God, perfectly keep the law of God, Everyone who fails to perfectly keep the law of God is cursed and worthy of divine judgment and condemnation. You see, the law of God has left the whole world guilty before God, and man can never make himself right with God. And so what do we have so far? Well, man is by nature and conduct a sinner, and he stands condemned before a holy God whom he hates, rejects, and refuses to honor. And he is incapable in and of himself to make himself right with God and acceptable to God. And he is on his way to eternal wrath and punishment. This is the bad news. And if we are ever going to understand the good news, then we must first understand the bad news and how bad it truly is. And it is bad. There could not be any worse news. And this, loved ones, is why people do not merely need a helper or a problem solver or a counselor. This is why they need a savior. They need a savior because they're sinners alienated from God, absolutely incapable of doing the very thing man was created and designed to do, which is to enjoy a relationship with our creator. People are on their way to hell. Not because they have problems. They're on their way to hell because they are sinners by nature and by conduct. And every aspect of their being is infected by sin. You see, the deadliest virus, contrary to the news media, the deadliest virus in the world is not the coronavirus. It is the sin virus. And unlike the coronavirus, the sin virus kills everyone it infects eventually, not just in time, but in eternity, not just physically, but spiritually. But praise God, there is a cure for the sin virus. <laughs> and this is what makes the gospel so wonderful. This is what makes the gospel such good and glorious news. I mean, God is not only our holy, righteous, just creator and judge, he is also loving and merciful and gracious and kind and long-suffering. And God loved the world so much that he devised the means by which man can be saved from his holy wrath against sinners. You see, something we, have, we must never, ever forget, and that is that God by nature is a savior. He loves man. He weeps over the plight of man. 
God, through the eyes of the prophet Jeremiah, wept for his people saying, Why will you die? Jesus wept over Jerusalem saying, Why will you not come to me that you might have life? Through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And then a little later in the same chapter, God said, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's the heart of God. You don't have to worry about whether God will receive and save the sinner. He is a Savior by nature. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, God, our Savior, as Paul said in 1 Timothy, desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Now, obviously, this does not mean that everyone will be saved. That's not what he's saying there. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that all people are not going to be saved. There are going to be many who are going to be cast into hell. It simply means that God desires that all men, all mankind, all races, Jew, Gentile, men from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all economic and social classes, trust in Christ. And the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people everywhere. I mean, Jesus issued a gracious invitation to all men when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, God has offered a gracious gospel invitation to all people everywhere. In Isaiah, when he said through the prophet, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. But the gospel is not only a gracious invitation, it is also a command to be obeyed. Paul, speaking in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. I mean, God desires all men to be saved, but each person must, by grace through faith, respond to the gospel and and repent or reject God's gracious offer of salvation and suffer the eternal consequences. And the point is simply that God is by nature a saving God. He is by nature a Savior. He is a God who loves sinners and has himself devised a way by which man can be saved. And this is good news. This is the good news. But that immediately raises the question, well, how can man be saved? Well, someone will say by being forgiven. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, the only possible way a sinner can be saved and reconciled to God is if God does not hold them accountable for their sin. I mean, the sinner must have his sins forgiven. The way that God reconciles sinners is by not counting their trespasses against them or by forgiving their sin. That's the very heart of the doctrine of justification. God forgives sin. But how can God forgive the sinner's sin? And I say that because God is holy and just, and His justice demands that all sin must be punished. And so how can God forgive the sinner and still be just? And so we're right back to the question, how can a man be saved? Well, by faith, you say. 
Well, yes, certainly a, a, a sinner must respond by faith, believing, or they will never be saved. And God is ready and willing to save the sinner. We don't have to, to plead with Jesus. He's willing to save, and he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And so we don't have to plead with God. He's willing to save. We need to plead with people to be saved. And so, yes, the sinner must respond by faith, believing. But we still haven't answered the question, how? A sinner can be saved. Because if God must punish all sin, and he absolutely must, because his holy nature and his justice demands it, well then how can God reconcile even a believing sinner, even though God desires to save him and the sinner desires it? How can God not hold him guilty for what they are guilty of? How can God satisfy his just and holy condemnation of sin with a full and deserved punishment that doesn't destroy the sinner forever? How can he do that? You see, loved ones, the answer to that is the heart and soul of the gospel. And to understand this is to understand what is so confused today. You understand this, and you will understand the gospel, and you will be among the ever-decreasing number of people in the church today who do. If God is going to save sinners, the only way he can do it is to deal with their sin. Well, what is he going to do with their sin? Well, sin must be dealt with. It must be. Sinners have to be punished for their sin. God cannot overlook sin. But if God punishes the sinner for sin, then they'll be condemned to hell forever. So what could he do? The answer? Someone has got to be punished for all that sin, right? And somebody was. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And here is the doctrine of of salvation. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Notice what Paul writes For our sake he who is that? Who is he speaking of there when he says he? Well, he's speaking of God. Okay, God the Father. For our sake, he, or God, made him, who's that? Jesus. So God made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who Hebrews says is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So God made Jesus, who was perfect, holy, and sinless, to be sin. Well, that's quite a statement. In what sense was Jesus made to be sin? And I ask that because uh, people like Kenneth Copeland, and it's in his sermons and books, Copeland and, and others like him, 
will tell you that on the cross, Jesus became a sinner and God had to punish him for those sins and he died under the weight of sin and had to go to hell and suffer for three days until his sins were paid for, after which he was allowed to be born again. That is blasphemous. Blasphemous. On the cross, Jesus was not a sinner. He never sinned. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. He was no more a sinner hanging on the cross than he was in all eternity before and since. He was still holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He was not a sinner on the cross. He was guilty of absolutely nothing. He was as pure hanging on the cross as he ever in all eternity is. Okay, so in what sense was Jesus made sin? Well, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, describes the only sense in which Jesus could have been made sin. Why don't you turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. (coughs) Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Here's what we read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What that means quite simply is this, that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever be saved, though in fact he committed none of them. That is the doctrine of substitution. You have the innocent dying for the guilty. The godly dying for the ungodly. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. Christ's death was a substitutionary atoning death. Jesus had not committed any sins. He was without sin. But God treated him as if he had committed all the sins of all who would ever believe. And that caused the Father to pour out his furious holy wrath and punishment on Jesus against those sins against our sin, my sin, and your sin. In other words, God punished Jesus on the cross as if he had lived my sinful life and your sinful life. And just think of that. Just think of all the sin in your life. All the sin through all of your life. All the sin in just the last few days and weeks, even hours, even the last few minutes. All that sin, that mountain range of sin. And God treated Jesus as if he had committed it all. That's substitution. But that's not all. That's only half of the equation. Look at the last part of verse 21. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, here we are, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Loved ones, this is the other side of substitution, which is an incredible truth. I mean, this is absolutely overwhelming. And we can explain it this way. Have you ever thought about why Jesus had to live 33 years? I mean, why, why prolong it? I mean, why 33? Why, why, why did he have to live why did he have to live here at all? Why didn't Jesus just come down for the weekend? You know, come down early Friday morning, die Friday afternoon, uh, you know, uh, be buried, rise Sunday, be back to heaven sometime Monday. I mean, seriously. Why not do that? Because the work that Jesus did that weekend, his death, burial, and resurrection is what saves sinners, Right? Right? So why the 33 years? And first of all, we don't know anything about the first 30 years of Jesus' life other than one incident when he was 12 years old. And you know the story. His parents uh, were headed home from Jerusalem. They went off and left him behind in the temple where he was there uh, asking questions of the teachers. But that's all we know. I mean, he lived on earth for 30 years, which we don't know anything about. And certainly there are all kinds of uh, nutty speculations. You know, there are stories about uh, Jesus as a little boy and he found a bird with a broken wing and he gave it a new wing and found a dog with a broken leg and gave it a new leg and a child, neighborhood child, suffering with sickness and he healed the sickness. Listen, we don't have any biblical information about that at all. None. It's all a bunch of wild speculation from non-biblical sources. We don't know what Jesus' early life was like. We do know, because the Bible tells us, that he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. But that's all we know about the first 30 years of his life. We know about the last three years of his life, and those last three years were nothing but grief. Grief. I mean, Jesus in those last three years is a man of sorrows. He is hated despised and rejected. There in the garden, he's sweating great drops of blood. He experienced trials that we can hardly even imagine as this perfect, sinless person is just battered by wicked sinners. I mean, why all of that? Why all of that grief? Because all that activity didn't redeem any sinners. So what, what are the 33 years all about? Well, when Jesus was going to be baptized, he went to John the Baptist. You remember the story. John said, no, you need to baptize me. And Jesus said, no, we must do this. We must do this. I must fulfill all righteousness. You say, okay, what's the point? The reason Jesus had to live those 33 years is that he had to live a perfect sinless life so that that perfect sinless life could be credited to our account. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life so that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect sinless life. My sins are put to Jesus' account 
and his perfect sinless life is credited to my account. That's imputation. My sin imputed to Christ. It's an accounting term. My sin placed on his account, marked paid in full. His righteousness placed in my account. And so when God looks down on those who are believers, what does he see? Even though we still sin, what does he see? He sees the perfect, sinless life of Christ. And he says, Jim Jarrett lived a perfect, sinless life. Dave Burnett lived a perfect, sinless life. Bill Tejan lived a perfect, sinless life. Anthony lived a perfect, sinless life. That's grace. That is nothing but grace. That's the doctrine of substitution, both sides. Jesus Christ is punished for our sins and we are treated as if we lived his perfect sinless life. I mean, that is so incomprehensible, it's beyond words. We are treated by God as if we had passed every trial, as if we were righteous in every relationship, every thought, every motive, every word, righteous in every deed, as if under persecution, hostility, hatred, and resentment, we've perfectly passed every test with a righteous response. That's nothing but grace. That is nothing but grace. And this is salvation. This is the gospel. This is the good news about what God has done for man in and through the finished work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that there is a cure for the sinner infected with the deadly sin virus. And so let's put all of this together now. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Well, to understand how good the good news really is, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is that God is holy, righteous, and just. He is infinite, all-powerful, all-wise. He is the creator of all things. God created the world, and he created man to live in relationship with him, to have fellowship and communion with him, to love him, adore him, worship him, serve him, and glorify him. But Adam willfully disobeyed God's command. He sinned. And in Adam, the entire human race fell and sin and death came into the world. And Adam's sin has been passed down to every human being that has ever been born except one, Christ. Every human being has inherited Adam's sin so that all men are born into this world sinners by birth, by nature, and by conduct. And so all men are sinners and therefore alienated from a holy God and deserving of nothing but death and punishment. And we can do nothing to change our nature. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. And the first sin the sinner ever commits is enough to condemn him to hell for eternity. And God cannot overlook man's sin. It must be punished. I mean, God, who is too perfectly holy to have anything to do with sinners except to reject them and to punish them forever. But God loves man. And God is by nature a savior. And so God so loved the world that he devised the means by which man can be saved. God sent his only son into the world. And Jesus humbled himself to a degree that we cannot begin to comprehend. And he became a man, and beyond that, a servant. And he lived a perfectly holy, sinless life. And then after being falsely accused of crimes he did not commit, he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. And Jesus humbled himself even to the point of suffering death by crucifixion. And he was crucified. And as he was on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though in fact he committed none of them. And God poured out his holy, furious wrath and punishment upon his only son. 
for our sin. On the cross, God punished Jesus as if He had lived your sinful life and mine so that He could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect sinless life. Jesus died for our sins. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for our sins and His death satisfied the demands of God's justice against sinners. He died. He was buried. Three days later, He rose from the dead for our justification. And after a period of 40 days, He ascended back to heaven where He is today seated at the right hand of the majesty on high where He ever lives to make intercession for all of those who belong to Him. And He's coming again. He's coming again. And as a result of Christ's finished work, the way to be reconciled to a holy God has been made. All of our sin punished on Jesus. The price has been paid in full. The way of salvation opened. And God offers this salvation as a free gift to any and all who will believe. That's the gospel. What is the gospel? That is the gospel. This is the good news from heaven announcing what God has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what must one do to be saved? Well, there is only one saving response to the gospel. And if we want to respond to this good news, we must repent. That is, we must turn around, turn from, turn from sin to God, and then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, to believe is more than intellectual agreement that Jesus is God. And you could say that believing is a sinner's simple trust in a Savior. Or you could put it like this. It's the grasp of a drowning man on the hand held out to pull him to safety. It's looking in faith to Jesus Christ alone, trusting in, relying upon His finished work upon the cross as your only hope of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, and reconciliation to God. And the one who humbles himself and admits that he is not good enough, that he is deserving of nothing but eternal hell unless God saves him. That one who believes in, that is, puts his faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, will be saved. For as Paul said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when they're saved, a miracle happens. A miracle happens in the spiritual realm. Their sins are forgiven. They're washed. They're cleansed. Jesus' righteousness is credited to their account. They are made new creatures in Christ. They are joined together with Christ. And all of the benefits of Christ become theirs through faith. And they have the promise of everlasting life and everlasting fellowship with God and, and the joy then of basking in His love and His glory for all eternity. That's the good news. That's the good news. So the appeal God is making through me to you this morning, if you've not yet trusted in Christ alone for salvation, is that you would hear this message and that you would understand it and trust yourself to Christ. You know, call upon His name. Come to Christ and to Christ alone for salvation. Because everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That, that is, as a church, that is our loving hope for anyone here who has never trusted in Christ alone. That's what we are praying. That's what people are praying right now and have been praying throughout this entire message. I mean, if you have never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we urge you to do so today. There's a sense of urgency about this. Because life is short. Death is sure, right? Sin the cause. Christ is the only cure.
you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we urge you to do so today. Come to Christ. And we pray that you won't leave here this morning without discovering more of what it means to trust in Jesus, to repent of your sins, and to follow him in the obedience of faith so as to be saved. Amen? Amen. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.